today, you know, I want to talk because sometimes when we, we say, well, that's all fine and good, you know, we should always have an answer. Uh, we should um, ask great questions and we should have hard conversations. But what do we, what do we say? I mean, what do you say when you don't know what to say? Or uh, what do you say when you don't know what to say to someone else in your life? Maybe what do you say when you look at your own life and it's not what you expected? What do you, what do you say? Or we talk about prayer being simply conversation with God. What do you say to God when you're out of words? You, you don't know what to say. Today we're going to talk about um, the words that we can always speak. They're always true. Often one of the privileges that I have as a pastor is I don't have to think up good ideas to talk to you about. I don't have to be clever. Uh, I only have to say the things that God says. And you might say, well, that's great because you're a pastor. But listen, we all have that same opportunity. Every one of you have the same opportunity to say the words. So I'm going to encourage you and invite you today to do that. Before we get into the word today, I actually want to do what we always do, which is pray. Uh, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God to be a blessing to men, to proclaim to the nations. But it's his very word. And so today we're going to pray that he would open our minds, soften our hearts, because they are hard, unclog our ears, we might hear, that we might believe and be changed. Uh, pray with me as you're led this morning. Father God, we thank you so much that you are the God who is present, that you are the God who is listening, that you are the one true God, that there is no God besides you, God. And so today we give you thanks and praise for that revelation. Indeed, today, Father, we recognize that apart from you, we would know nothing of you. Had you not chose to reveal yourself through creation, through our own internal witness, through your Holy Spirit that dwells amongst us richly, through your Son who was incarnated and condescended to our broken state to show us your great love, we would know nothing of you. And so even today, as I recognize, as I speak to you, it's without worth, but fully uh, dependent on you. We believe that your word is true, and today we come to hear from you. May, may you speak into our hearts. I pray for every life and every situation that comes this morning that none of us would find you irrelevant, that we, we might struggle with the stuff, but we wouldn't struggle with you, that we would be open to you, we'd be listening to you, Father God. And as much as we're able that we could set aside this stuff, the preconceptions and the assumptions that we bring into this relationship, and we would just listen to you, that we would have our hearts opened completely. We utterly need you to save us. We cannot do it ourselves, and we pray that you would do this work today. We pray it would happen through the word, and we pray in his name. Amen. So we're going to do something, uh, we're going to jump a, a, there's a lot of texts today. By the way, after Easter, we're going right back to Mark. I'm really excited to get back into Mark. And I want to give you a heads up uh, for our Easter. We're going to do three weeks for Easter, right? Because it's about a month away, give or take. You know, some of you say it's less than a month, but you know what I'm saying? But to really, I just want us to reflect. And I want to give you a heads up that we could start like this week just to reflect on the glory of Jesus and what he's done. I just want us to spend some time as a church thinking about the magnificence of of Easter. And so I'm going to encourage you in your prayer time, your quiet time, to just really spend time just meditating on that reality. Today I'm going to invite you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 
10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So turn there if you would, and we're going to read a few verses. This is from the Apostle Paul, written to the church in Corinth. I'm actually going to start in verse 1. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am, quote, timid when face to face with you, but, quote, bold when I'm away. I beg you that when I came, when I come, I might not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. Verse 3. For though we live in this world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. It sounds like you're, you've gotten a, a, a bad note from the teacher, right? And he's talking about, and there's kind of a couple things. I just want to focus a little bit on this idea that he says, um, I don't want to have to be bold when I come to you, but he says this, that we don't fight the way the world fights. That we enter into this battle, and we talk about using your words, we enter into this battle different than the way the world does. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say to you, and sometimes we get caught in this trap, that it's not, it's not important that we out-logic someone with the truth of Jesus. It's not important that we have the exact combination of words that we can say, wow, I did a great job. It's important, rather, that we just proclaim him. You see, Paul says we don't, we don't fight the way the world does but rather, we fight with divine power to demolish strongholds. And then check it out, verse 5. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against what? Sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And then if you think it's external, check it out, he says. And we take captive every thought to make those thoughts obedient to Christ. We've talked before that. This idea of Christ is the anointed one, anointing. And therefore, this is an outside thing. I hope you see that. This is a, a communal thing, and this is an inside thing. This is what we do. These are the weapons that we fight with in this life. And they are not the weapons that the world uses. I've heard someone well say this. They said, the problem with arguing someone into belief in Jesus is someone can argue them out, Right? The problem with convincing someone logically that Jesus is the answer and therefore you've come to this conclusion is that someone else can come along and convince them out. But the truth is this, that if you or I have an experience with a true, living, breathing God, no one can convince us otherwise. So what can we do then to fight with these weapons that Paul says are the very power of God, the divine power that demolishes strongholds in our own lives what can we do to take every thought captive and make those thoughts obedient to Christ? I want to put forward to you a great path that we have laid before us that few of us use. And it's this, that we should say the word 
And I want to be very literal <laughs> and say, when I mean say the word, I mean say the Bible. Say the Bible. There's this fun thing in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John where it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos, the logic of God, the thinking of God, the manifestation of God became incarnate in this person that is Christ, that is Messiah. And, 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 and that's true, and yet what we have in the scriptures is a full revelation of who God is. This is why the word of God is active because it's about a living God. So when I say that we should speak the Bible, I mean like literally. So today I want to impact that a little bit. I want to say, well, how, how can we do that? How can we speak the word of God? You see, the truth is that my, my experience, and the reason I'm so blessed to come to Family Bible Church, right? I didn't make that up. I came here. Y'all had that idea before I got here. Family Bible Church. I love it. Because the word of God is like nothing other and if we have any environment, we have the absolute uh, excuse and permission to just examine the word of God. That is awesome. I hope that we would never, listen, I hope that we would never make this about anything but the word of God. And I hope that you would never participate in a gathering that doesn't make it about the word of God. Family, Bible, church. The truth is that my experience, in my own life, by the way, and also in many of yours, is that we neglect the word. We neglect the word. If you, if you ever uh, visit another church, you might look on the shelves near the coat racks, and you will invariably see a couple of very, very nice Bibles that someone has left. Maybe they have others at home. I mean, I don't know, right? invariably look you'll see them i was in a church the other day i was looking there's a bible stack those are the lost and found you might even have a bible at home on your own shelf that you've not touched in a long time many of you know the story of my own neglected treasure that was hidden in the attic so lost i didn't know where it was and i had to ask my wife to find it and that was embarrassing see the truth is that we will ask friends for advice man my life's a mess. What should I do? Matter of fact, we, this is a new cultural phenomenon, but we will ask Google anything. Okay, Google. You hear it? That's creepy, by the way. <laughs> My son likes to mess with people, and he says, Shmoke, shmoople. And they still work. <laughs> anything close, Google will answer. Yeah, what do you need? Huh? We'll ask Google anything. Strangely enough, we will also ask complete strangers anything. Strangers, what do, you, what do you think I should do in my life? What do you think my priorities should be? Should I take the job or, or not? Should, should I break up with them or, or not? Should I have the affair or not? Should, should I stay for my kids or not? And we have television shows and we have internet personalities and we have celebrities and we have everyone telling us what we should do and we're just all ears oh my gosh they said we should do it we should do it but we don't even ask god i mean does that make make you crazy at all truth be told god is often the very last place we turn when nothing else is working oh. okay god let me ask you a question so what, what can we do then? My argument is that 
we should say the word, the Bible. We should say it in our lives. I want to posit to you that we should start, start simple and say Jesus. Just start with Jesus. This to me is the Cliff's Notes version of the entire text. Jesus. Have you ever been driving down the highway and you see the spray painting on the overpasses? Or you drive into St. Louis and you see the walls that have graffiti? And they'll, they'll have people's individual tags and stuff. But invariably you'll see Jesus. Or maybe two words, trust Jesus. Right? We can just start there. I'm amazed that whenever we reflect on the scripture, Jesus begins to invite people following him even though they don't yet believe. You follow me. Me? Yeah, follow me. Oh, okay, I'll follow you. Don't, don't believe yet. I want to share with you from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I think I have it on the screens here. I'm going to take a minute to turn there. John 14, and Jesus is teaching. He says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. By the way, this is a famous passage. Right after he says that, he says this. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. But I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. Trust in God, Jesus says. Trust also in me. We can simply start with Jesus. I've had conversations with dear, dear friends. And we get into all these theological conversations, these deep thoughts and this and that. But at the end of the day, it comes to a point where it's about Jesus. You'll remember that Peter said the word, right? But who do you say that I am? It, it comes down to Jesus himself. So if nothing else, we can start there. If you don't know what to say when someone approaches you, you can say Jesus. People says, why do you have hope in your life? You can say Jesus. I mean, I'm not it's a rudimentary teaching. I'm not trying to be silly, but it's a great place to start, and you're not going to do it wrong, Jesus. You know why we don't do that a lot? We're embarrassed. We well, say, oh, I'm not embarrassed of Jesus, right? But we're embarrassed to say that that's what, the fundamental truth of what we believe. Jesus. We even make jokes in the church about it being a Sunday school answer. And with the answer right, just say Jesus. Right? The truth is, it is the answer. He is the answer. I was reading this week uh, uh, an author, he, he said this. This is a great quote, man. I just, I love it. Talking about biblical inerrancy. Big theological, you know, thing. And this is what he said. His name's uh, Trevin Wax, by the way. If you want to check out his book, I think it's called Unbreakable the word of God, right? And this is, this is what he says. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust in the Bible. You ever heard that? You know, the Bible tells us about Jesus, therefore you believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. There's actually a song about that in there. This is what he says. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. See, the Bible is a story about Jesus, but we trust in Jesus and, and then he makes that point because his book's about how Jesus believed the Bible was true. So right now in a lot of our conversations, we think we're above all that. We've moved beyond all that. But the problem is you have to leave Jesus behind because he wasn't above or beyond any of that. He believed the Bible was true. Therefore, if we know Jesus and trust in Jesus, we can trust in the Bible. That it's true. 
I went through real quickly, and I did a survey of how many times Jesus referenced Scripture in his ministry. Three years, right? We have recorded ministry of Jesus. 33 times he says words like, it is written, have you not read, do you not know? This is what it says, but I say to you. Fully versed. You know famously, whenever he was himself being confronted by Satan in the desert, Jesus did not rebuke Satan by his own authority. He rebuked it by the authority of the word of God. And yet, the same word we neglect in our life. So, like Jesus, we can start there. We can just start with Jesus. Now I want to get into the, the more um, fulfilled, uh, whatever, the more technical, the more fully grown ways that we can engage in the word of God. Okay? So we're going to start with Jesus, man. And if you don't know what to do, start with Jesus. That's super cool. That's where we want to be. But here I want to talk about four ways. We're going to call this the four-legged stool of discipleship. If you want to become a better follower of Jesus, these four things will be key. It's four ways, kind of four areas of engagement we can have that we can saturate our lives with the Word of God and why it would matter, how it would, how it would change things. I've, I've um, heard this taught us three. We're going to do four today, four things. I'm going to put them all up here at once so you can see them, and then we're going to walk through them one at a time. There we go. So there's four four major ways that we can engage with the Word of God. And I thought it was funny. We have, we have something unique at Family Bible Church. We have these stools, which we uh, bust out every, every Sunday, and we use. And um, it's such a simple idea, right? But, and there happens to be four legs. I'm like, oh, this is perfect. This is perfect. And so I want to talk this morning, and I want to remind us of, uh, this is a really, really fat marker. We'll see how this works what these four, four legs are. So the first is proclamation. Proclaiming the word of God. So I'm going to write that here. Proclaim. We have the opportunity in our lives to proclaim God's word. I'm going to say to you that proclaiming God's word is different than other forms of communication that we might do with the word of God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, We did not proclaim ourselves to you, but rather we proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. This is a public proclamation. You know that letter, he says, I'm I'm timid in person and I'm bold in letters, right? He's like, when we come together together in public settings, we proclaim Jesus Christ. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that he says explicitly, we don't proclaim ourselves. Too often, our gatherings become not about proclaiming who Jesus is, but proclaiming who we are. In our public gatherings, look at our church, look at us, look at our clothes, look at our perfect families. And that's all fine and good until our clothes are screwed up, or our families are screwed up, or our church is screwed up. And then you go, what do you have to proclaim? Nothing. Listen, we are called to proclaim Jesus as a church, called to proclaim the truth of Scripture Someone actually said recently, they said, and I know this is, you know, you guys might be, you know, they were talking and someone said they had a disagreement between two churches 
They were coming together, praise the Lord. These two churches were merging together, which is gospel work, man. If churches could come together instead of dividing and dividing and dividing, that would be awesome. I mean, that would be a sign that Jesus is coming, I think, <laughs> if churches started coming together. But one of the disagreements these two churches had was that old wooden cross in the sanctuary. And, and I, I, on one side I go, okay. And on the other side I go, what? What? Because... It's central to the message. This is the Sunday school answer to the sin problem that we have. We don't put it there as decoration. We shouldn't. We put it there to remind it that a full-grown man, the very Son of God, was nailed up, that we could be free of sin. We put it there to remind us that you and I rightly should hang there for all eternity to pay for our sins. And then when the last bit was paid, we would still be in debt because we had set ourselves up against the very God who made us. Fair enough, though. What do we proclaim? Some would say, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. That's not true. We don't want to make people uncomfortable for the wrong reasons. We should be uncomfortable and confronted with the truth that the only way that we can make peace with God is to have God save us. That's uncomfortable. Uh, we like to proclaim ourselves. As Savior. Oof. Come on, church. We like to say, I've figured it out. Not Jesus Christ saves me. Examples of public proclamation are our Sunday worship services. True. Obvious. Right? Other examples, though. Public speaking opportunities. Maybe you have the opportunity to speak in front of people. I had a friend of mine that went to, a, um, to China as an English, a second language teacher as part of a, a covert missionary project, but the problem was they couldn't use the word Jesus in any of their teaching. It was forbidden. They couldn't use it, and he was so upset. I think I told you this before. He came back from, he was so upset, he thought about not going. He said, I must spend three months in China. I'm supposed to be teaching the gospel to students, and I can't say any of the words Jesus, Christ, Bible, my friend Rod came back and he said, you can't believe how many ways you can talk about Jesus without those words. He went and proclaimed the gospel. I remember he was telling a story about a young woman who came up and began to talk to him about mistakes and how you can make mistakes. And he began to use a pencil and an eraser to explain the truth that we need salvation. We need something to fix it. Public speaking opportunities exist for all of us. Opportunities to proclaim Christ in our lives. We see this sometimes, don't we? Athletes, politicians. Praise God. What do we do? How about this? Uh, home decor. Home decor. If you don't know this about me, you'll find out in about five seconds. <laughs> I mean, like right now. <laughs> I love scripture on stuff, man. <laughs> I know it's kind of churchy and all that stuff. I love scripture and stuff. You know what I don't love? <laughs> These cute little things we've made up that aren't biblical. <laughs> we just put them on stuff. You know, I'm not trying to be mean. Uh, Chris always says, Bill, Bill, be sensitive. But you know, if you're going to put a, a message on the side of your house, if you're going to put a, a message on the inside, if you're going to put a, a sign on the wall, if you're going to put a, a bumper sticker in the car, man, I hope it's proclaiming the truth of the gospel and not some wishy-washy Hallmark sentiment that came out of a greeting card. Come on. 
Well, you say, why does it matter? Someone's reading it. This is what this person's about. The way we decorate our homes. We've, we've in our home, and this is not a point of pride, this is a point of desperation. <laughs> Listen to me. We've hung scripture up, so we all have to read it all the time. Some of the greatest gifts I've gotten have been gifts of scripture written out in some form that we put it out for display that it reminds us what the word says. We have the opportunity in home decor. How about t-shirts? Again, some people go, oh, Christian t-shirts, right? Yeah, but hey, it's proclamation, isn't it? Or you can proclaim Nike or Adidas. I love Adidas. Bumper stickers, is that a thing anymore? I feel like bumper stickers are one of those things like you got maybe one or you got way too many. <laughs> like one dude didn't get the memo like, okay, we got the message. <laughs> the whole back of your car is like wallpaper with bumper stickers. That's fun. But you know where I've seen them though? I've seen them on laptops. You ever seen that? Bumper stickers on laptops, yeah? Right? We're still proclaiming something, aren't we? We put that out there. Opportunities to proclaim the word. Okay, our second then is, uh, so that's public proclamation. Some way that you're kind of having these like out loud conversations with people around you. The second um, proclamation, the second uh, way that we can engage the word of God is through uh, study. We'll push that button again, and we're going to write on our stool again, so study. And study is any time that we set and take seriously the word of God, right? So I'm not... <clears throat> Some people think, oh, you got to be a biblical scholar. You know, I was amazed. I was listening to someone. They said, uh, they were talking to a group of pastors. This is recently. They talking to a group of pastors. And they said, in North America. And they said, if you have the tools at your, uh, at your fingertips, you can do an original word study. And I thought, if you have an internet connection at all, 3G, 4G, uh, high-speed, high library, you have the tools. This time that we live in is absolutely crazy for studying the word of God. So we have an opportunity to engage and look at the word seriously. But I want to talk um, a little more about the time, the intentionality of getting together with others to look at the word of God together. In other words, doing it on purpose. Not hoping you get together with your friends and it accidentally comes up, but having a time set aside, you get together and you look at what the word of God says, and you wrestle together with what that means for our lives. Um, this is, uh, I'm going to share with you a quote from the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 2, verse uh, 42. I'm going to read around it a little bit. Give me a minute to get there. It's after the Gospel of John, by the way, if you're flipping around in your Bible. Acts 2.42. It's great breaking out of the Holy Spirit, this great manifestation of the church, the ecclesia, the call that ones, this new revelation of what God is doing. But this is what it says. After all the noise and all the winds died down, this is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know where that's captured? The apostles' teaching. And to a fellowship. That's just relationship, right? Community. To the breaking of bread, that's eating. You might say communion. That's fair, but it's also just eating. And to prayer. And, and those four things they devote themselves to. And then look at 43. Everyone was filled with awe. And many, many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles, by those who were sent. So you have this simple thing of getting together and learning what the apostles' teachings were. And the apostles' teachings were teaching about Jesus, and Jesus' teaching was teaching about the Word. And so basically they're getting together and studying together. They're thinking deeply together. They're wrestling together. So it's a second form, a second way that we can engage in this conversation. 
This is the mark of the early church, and, it's, and, it, and it results in great growth. And I don't just mean numeric growth. I know we're amazed that pre Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people came to faith. Praise God. What's more miraculous is that after 3,000 people came to faith, they continue to study the word of God and grow as disciples and believers to the point that the diaspora happens, and then the gospel is spread throughout the whole world. We're amazed that 3,000 people are converted. I'm amazed that 3,000 people stuck with Jesus long enough to actually go out and serve him in a powerful way. And then we have stories of, like, Philip running up to the eunuch and explaining what the scriptures mean. You remember that? He runs up to the thing, and he grabs the chariot, and he says, I can tell you what that means. Do you think he just got a divine revelation in the moment? Or do you think he had read the prophet Isaiah, and he knew about the gospel, and he understood the connection of Jesus and scriptures? And at the moment, when God gives him the opportunity, he says, oh, I can tell you about this. And he changes the life story of one unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. Examples of these types of gatherings are small groups, of course. It's something we call small groups, which is maybe like an in-house church word, but it means a small gathering. Some have said small groups are social gatherings. I don't think that's true. They can be, but they ought not be. I believe small groups should be a time for engaging in the Word of God. Here at Family Bible, we have something called family groups. And by the way, they're starting up at the, uh, in a few weeks here. A week before Easter, we're starting our family groups back up again. We're going to have one on w Monday and one on Wednesday. So if you're interested, um, keep your eyes open. We're going to have some material in the back. But we talk about family groups. What we say is, if you want to have a successful family group, you need uh, four things. Well, maybe, you know, you can make a longer list. You need people. That's one part, right? But you need to have prayed together. You need to have eaten together. You need to have... Uh, read the Word of God together. That's what you need. And if you've done those things, by the end of that, you've succeeded in family groups. Not, we are social creatures. We need that. But it can't be the point. We need to get into the Word of God. So we have small groups, family groups here at Family Bible. That's what we call our small groups. Bible studies, men's Bible studies, women's Bible studies, youth ministry where they study the Bible. Any of these small gatherings, Right? Where you get together and you look at what the word says. We're going to have Dave uh, Stahl's memorial service today. I can't, we were talking about this before. I can't help but think about Dave at men's steak nights with his knife so he could cut his steak up. I can't help but think of brothers who would say, can I cut it for you? And sometimes he would say, sure. And sometimes he would say, I got it. <laughs> but you know what? We weren't there for steak. We were there for the word. What did we do? We prayed, we ate, we broke bread, and we grew, became better followers of Jesus. So this is the second kind of leg, the second, the second leg of the stool, where we can be involved in deeper understanding what the Word of God means. As a matter of fact, you might go to a proclamation on Sunday morning and go, man, that makes no sense. That guy is crazy. That girl's crazy. That thing's crazy. What are you talking about at my church? And then you go to the study, and you go, oh, okay, I can talk about this myself. I can look at the Word myself. I've told you all many, many times, don't take my word for it. I am a sinful man. Look at the word, pray to God, ask for revelation and truth. Do it in community. Opportunities abound. The third way that we can engage in scripture, I love this, right, is to meditate. It's funny, actually, I was um, thinking about meditation, and for many people, I've got to concentrate so I don't spell this wrong. 
M-E-D-I-T-A-T-E. Everybody agree with that? Thank you. My, my wife can spell really well. Because <laughs> it would be embarrassing to have a spelling error on the stool. <laughs> Dan would be like, what happened? Well, I spelled it wrong. You know what's funny about meditation is some of, some of us think, all we think about with meditation is transcendental meditation. I remember one time I was at the VP fair and there was a guy sitting on top of that flood wall with his fingers like this in a complete state of bliss while thousands of people walked by who could push him to his death. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> he, he, he has more trust in people than I have in God sometimes right there. Come on, sitting there. Meditate on the Word of God. Do you know what's been reclaimed recently? Meditation and reflection was a Christian idea. Do you know that's true? Some people say, well, I don't meditate. That's weird, right? That's from the hippies and stuff, right? Meditation, thinking deeply about things, getting quiet, man. We live in a culture that's so loud, and we nonstop. We're nonstop. This week I visited somebody, and uh, I had to leave my cell phone in my car. I had to have all my stuff out of my pockets. I was hanging out, and then the person couldn't meet with me for 45 minutes. I almost died. <laughs> you guys are joking. I almost died. I was in a room full of people, and I was freaking out. I was getting the twitches. I was, like, texting people. I didn't even have a phone. I was just doing this. Like, <laughs> man, we are so loud. And, I was, and you know what happened? I had to sit there long enough with Jesus. And he goes, why, why are you so disturbed by silence? I'm like, Jesus, I don't know. He's like, when have you got quiet with me lately? And I was like, it's been a long time. How would I even do it? Meditate to think deeply. I want to go to the Psalms. Check it out. Psalm 1. This is so good. Psalm 1, by the way, psalms are the, uh, the, the songs uh, or the prayers. Someone has said, if you want to know how to pray, read the psalms. I'll teach you how to pray, right? Psalm 1. I got this Cliff Notes version up there, but check this out. Um, ble- this is the way the book of Psalms starts. <laughs> Blessed is the man, and I'm, I'm going to read it, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or set in the seat of mockers, a blessed man who does not hang out with the culture. That's what that says, basically. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Look at his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, what? On his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. And it says, whatever he does prospers. Blessed is the man or woman whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And, it, and the, the interpretation here of the law isn't like the law, right? It's like the law that gives life. It says it, it's like being planted next to a stream, He meditates on it day and night. He thinks about the word and what it means day and night. And you go, I'm busy, I don't have time. But can you put it in? Can we think about scripture? Can we, can we, you know, here's a funny thing, by the way. Check this out. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9. Any time, any time today you say, man, you know, uh, my family is a mess. Uh, my kids are out in the weeds. Uh, things aren't going super well, and I don't know where to turn. This is called the Shema because it says here, right? But hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then verse 6, the things that I say today are to be put upon your hearts and impress them on your children. Talk about these things when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your households and on your outside gates. Like, claim the word of God in your life. I was talking just for a minute, just for a minute to parents. Like, your, your kids are out in the weeds. Have you ingested the word of God? I mean, I feel this myself. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching, like, with you, right? D- does the word of God permeate you in such a way that, that, that you can't help but to say, you know, I've been thinking about this. Or what does the Bible say about that? Or have you considered? Do you listen when you talk to your kids for words? Do you, do you bring them some accountability back to what Scripture says when the culture is going completely the other way? Paul says what? Divine power that destroys strongholds of those who put themselves up against God. What? It's how we war. You say, well, it, do, it doesn't say meditate, right? I mean, it doesn't say meditate. <laughs> Talk about it when you're at home and when you walk along the road. By the way, when you walk along the road, comes awful close to proclamation, when you sit at home, awful close to study. But then look at the last part. When you lie down and when you get up, right? Those are times that you don't have a lamp on. You know, you're just sitting there with yourself. Thinking. Meditating. Turning the word around. It's hard, right? Because it's been a gift to me that the word of God works like that in my life. You know, like I preach the word of God. I'm not saying this in a point of pride, folks. I preach the word of God to myself as much as I preach it to anybody. I, the word comes to me. But I can't believe that that's just a me thing. I think that God's given it to all of us, to all of you. And then in your lives, if you would begin to ingest the word of God, if you begin, you know, to avail yourself to public proclamation, if nothing else, go to church on Sundays and hear the word of God preached, right? But then if you take that next step and you begin to study and read the word of God, then you take that next step and you begin to meditate on it, to reflect on it, right? Some examples of this would be like a morning devotional maybe or an evening devotional, which is my favorite, by the way. These are, those are examples of meditating on the word of God, going deeper in quiet times by yourself, but getting the, or that you would memorize scripture. You would just take a small piece of scripture and stick it in your heart, you know? There's a, uh, the famous shortest, shortest passage in the Bible. You know what it is? Anybody? Who said it? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Well, that's not very good, Bill, isn't it? Why did Jesus weep? Why, why did the Son of God, the Son of Man, the divine incarnation, cry? What was his purpose? Was he, was he putting on a show for people to see him weeping? Was he really genuinely hurting? Why did Jesus weep? Let that roll around your mind when you're going to sleep. Why, Jesus, why did you weep? What were you weeping about when your friend died? See how that is? We start to reflect on one little scripture. Most famous Bible verse, everybody that goes to baseball games knows it. For God's love of the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe would have eternal life. 